And now, joining us live from the comfort of her own living room, it's Ida February for the Dear February Show. Stop it, everyone. Stop it. You're making me blush. Hi. How are you? I am Ida Fevrier, the host of the Dear Fevrier podcast, and I am absolutely thrilled to join you here for the second episode. Now, before we start and we get into the nitty gritty, I just want to say a huge thank you for all the love that I received on the first episode. I did not expect such a huge turnout and so much love. I've received so many messages, so many people shared it, and I really expected this first episode to fall into the ether of the internet, and it didn't, and I'm so, 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 so grateful. Also, if you listen to the mix, honestly, my heart is already very, very full. Now, I'm also very glad for this second episode because we're starting to get serious here. I've got these episodes are going to be longer than the first one. They're going to be more detailed. But yeah, how are you guys? I have had the perfect Sunday today. I feel like a 35-year-old suburban mom. I started my day off by reading in a coffee shop. I then went to a yoga class with some friends, did some vinyasa flow. I then, it gets worse. I got an avocado toast with halloumi and mushrooms on it. I then had another coffee with a friend, went home, had the shower, not any shower, the shower, the one where you shave, scrub, exfoliate, like wash every inch of your body, confess to a priest, that kind of shower. And I came out and I was like, you know what? I'm in the mood to record now. And guess what I'm doing? One thing about podcasting that I've learned so far in these two episodes is that you need to be in a mood. You need to be in a very specific mood where you're willing to talk. Also, podcasting is like a lonely thing. It's just me listening to myself and then chopping it up. Anyways, enough about my day. I am now in the absolute perfect mood to talk about today's topic, which is crime. So as you might have seen, today's episode is titled In Cold Blood, which is a book by Truman Capote. So I'll be speaking about that. I'm also extremely excited for my first guest on the podcast. I will be joined by criminologist Jennifer Fleetwood, who was very kind to agree to talk to me about what she does. Jennifer did her PhD in women in the cocaine drug trade in South America. I was able to reach out to her and see if I could ask her a couple of questions and she agreed but yeah crime why is it that all us hot girls are able to fall asleep watching absolutely horrendous murders online it's funny because i'll almost be more freaked out about a horror film or something that is completely fictional than hearing about a man two doors down from my house who murdered his wife I think one of the reliefs and why crime fiction is so popular is because it didn't happen to us. Like, you know when there's a car crash on the highway and you can't stop looking, even though you shouldn't? Like, it's very that. We're fascinated by the different facets of humanity and how certain humans can fall off the rail and just be complete psychos. Also, like, being a psychopath, you have to be fucking intelligent. Like, so many psychiatrists in prison just say that the worst criminals were the chillest ones to hang out with and that the most violent ones were usually the really petty criminals. I think, yeah, it's just so intriguing because it is present 
in our current world, but not many of us are actually confronted to it. I'm also always fascinated by every like hot criminal always has a horde of fans that are absolutely obsessed with him. Have I ever been involved in criminal activity? (laughs) I would say that most of my troubles with the law are weed related. Actually, funny story, weed actually ended my career in the fashion industry. Long story short, when I was about 17, I was working on a few editorials for fashion magazine as a stylist assistant. And I received a gig for quite a famous magazine, which I won't say the name, but it's one of the big ones. Also, first of all, the setup to this shoot was already extremely problematic. They sent us to this suburb, like this really, really poor suburb outside of Paris with with a majority of immigrants. And we came over there with all these Gucci and Prada clothes and we dressed up all these little children like for free. Like we didn't pay them. I was like also paid a ridiculously small amount of money for an 18 hour day. So basically, (laughs) let's get to my criminal uh, record. After this shoot, I was meant to be going to a festival in Paris and it was kind of like one of my first festivals and like Kate Trinata was playing and I was like, okay, like I want to pick up weed. I'm not obviously assuming that they sold weed because we were in a poor suburb outside of Paris, but basically there was clearly like a couple of dealers outside the place we were shooting and I kind of came up to them. One of them was actually helping us out on the shoot in terms of location and I basically just kind of went up to him and was like, yo, do you have any weed? like little 17 year old me and the guy was like yeah of course no problem like let me get you that he was super sweet but the thing is i'm pretty sure that i forgot to give him the money but i'm pretty sure that the dealer invoiced the shoot for the weed that i got and then anyway i was also kind of stupid because i told another girl who i was working on the shoot with and i think that she ratted me out and then yeah i basically got an email from the head stylist of the shoot being like hi um we heard that you got weed on the shoot we don't want to work with you ever again so that was the end of my career in fashion industry due to marijuana oh i've also like shoplifted when i was younger and actually this is also a funny story lena if you're watching hi um we were like 14 at h&m we were really stupid because we went to a mall and like if you steal from a store it's quite easy to just run out into the streets but in a mall they like literally watch you as you're in the rest of the place so we were at h&m in this huge mall and yeah i I think i took like a tank top that didn't have a tag on it and like a pair of earrings and it wasn't even like for the items at this time like it was literally just for the thrill of it because we were 14 and clearly bored and basically so we were on our way out of the store and we get caught by the security guard I mean, obviously, I am absolutely shitting my pants. Like, I was like, if my mom finds out, I'm dead. And (laughs) instinctively, so this was in France, right? And my friend Lena is also half American. And we just started speaking English and pretending that we didn't speak French. We were just like, no, oh my God, like, we're so sorry. We didn't know how the tills worked, some bullshit like that. The guy was vexed. He didn't give a shit about anything that we said. Took us into the back room, went through our bags, obviously found like our French passports. And then we were like, oh no, mon papa est français. But the guy was kind of cool. He saw that we freaked out and he was like, look, you know what? Like, just go. It's fine. Just leave the things that you stole. But this is where it gets tricky. 
so we leave we're like super relieved like oh my god <laughs> that was so cheeky we go to buy ice cream and basically my friend had like a hundred euros in cash in her wallet and we realized that the money had gone missing also bear in mind that that security guard did not speak a word of english so we like pretended that we didn't understand him and he couldn't understand us we went back to the h&m found the security guard and we're like look bro like we had 100 euros we know that you took it and this is when it escalated he was like are you fucking accusing me of being a thief like what the fuck is this you want me to call the police then i started shitting my pants again he called the store manager he called another security guard it kept escalating and i was like freaking out and then out of nowhere, the security guard just hands us back the money that he took. And then we left and we got ice cream. Yeah, that is the closest things I've experienced in terms of crime. So let's say that I have a pretty hefty criminal record. Anyways, enough about me. I am really excited for the book of today's episode because this book is what really sparked my interest in literature. And it's In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. Now, first of all, if you don't know about Truman Capote, he's the guy who wrote Breakfast at Tiffany's, but his entire life and career, he was really known as this like campy New York elite guy. And I think he was like stuck in a rut for a while in terms of his writing. And one day he just flicked through a newspaper and saw a really tiny article about this murder that happened in Kansas where a family of four were slaughtered. And he went with his childhood best friend, Harper Lee, who's also the author of To Kill a Mockingbird. He went to Kansas because he wanted to know more about this murder. He was meant to stay for like six weeks and ended up staying for six years. This book has also been deemed as like one of the fathers of nonfiction novels. So once Capote was in Holcomb, Kansas, they actually arrested the murderers of the Clutter family. The two criminals were put on death row and Capote was able to interview them the entire time when they were in prison. So you get a triple narrative in the book. There's the murderer's point of view, the victim's, the people of the city, and it is such a juicy book. Like, I haven't reread it in seven years, but I have such a strong memory of it in my mind. I've also always had a really weird fascination for, like, really buttfuck middle of America. I think it's because it's very similar to where my mother grew up in Sweden, just, like, farmers and nothing going on. And you have this entire tiny little town of Holcomb in 1959 that is just completely shook and gagged from this murder and the family was killed for like absolutely no reason at all it is beautifully written like amazing attention to detail there's just such a good narrative such a good like description of characters from everyone in the town one thing that i do recommend if you're not really bothered about reading the book would be to watch the capote film so it is a biopic on truman capote's life but it does focus mainly on him writing in cold blood because it did take up about six years of his life and it completely changed his career he didn't write anything else after that he had some form of weird attachment with the criminals that were in jail and that is really well portrayed in the film capote is played by philip seymour hoffman who won an oscar for this role i adore that man may his soul rest in peace because he, i consider him as one of the greatest actors of this era I don't know what you're talking about. Truman Capote. 
read last night before a packed audience from his nonfiction book, In Cold Blood. The true crime novel tells of killers Richard Hickok and Perry Smith, who brutally murdered a Kansas family three years ago. Who sent that to you? It's not your goddamn business. It is my business because it's not true. The organizers of the reading needed a title. They picked one, a sensational one, I admit, to attract a crowd. They picked it. Yes. It's not your title. Mary, I haven't chosen one yet. How could I choose a title when we still haven't talked about that night? How could I? I couldn't. Possibly. You pretend to be my friend. I'm sorry. I should have told you. I couldn't pretend to be your friend. And the truth is, I can't help wanting to be. So, if you love Juicy Crime, please read this book. It is honestly, like, every page is so juicy. Even though it takes place in such a small little boring town, there's so much going on. So, there's been multiple films and biopics about the whole story of In Cold Blood. But the Capote film, I think, is a really good representation of the relationship Capote had with the criminals. And that one came out in 2005. But also, Capote got a lot of hate for this book when it came out because he was really known for his, like, flamboyant, campy self, New York socialite, knew everyone. And everyone was a bit like, why the hell are you releasing a crime book? If you want to read something more in Capote's kind of New York socialite style, I definitely recommend Music for Chameleons. It's a collection of short stories about fame and living in New York City. I just love this man so much. Like, I'm absolutely fascinated by him. If you've ever seen interviews of Capote, he's like this tiny, tiny little bald man and he speaks like this. And he is a really hard man to impersonate. So that's why I think Philip Seymour Hoffman was 100% worthy of that Oscar. So that is the book for today's episode. If you enjoyed true crime, I think this is definitely one of the staples in terms of nonfiction crime literature. All right, so I am absolutely thrilled to introduce to you guys the first ever guest on Dear Fevrier, Jennifer Fleetwood. Jennifer is a criminologist and sociologist whose research and writing centers on women, gender, and crime and lawbreaking. Please welcome Jennifer Fleetwood. I just realized that the first question I asked Jennifer was cut off in the recording, so let me just act it out. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you for joining me today. How did you get involved in criminology? So how did I get involved in criminology? So I guess one way of answering this question is to tell you that when I was in my 20s, um, I was backpacking in Ecuador and I heard that we could go and visit a local prison, which to me sounded very interesting. Um, And when I was growing up, my dad was a criminal defence lawyer. So he was often called to go and see clients in the prison. So going to prison to me didn't seem like that weird a thing to do in the first place. And so I went along and visited the men's prison and uh, met people who were fantastically friendly and happy to have visitors because prison is is never a nice place to be and being in prison far away from your home country is especially tough, I think. Um, And that turned into a project 
for my undergraduate dissertation. And then I got funding and was able to return and do my master's and PhD. That's kind of how I got involved in the academic stuff of criminology. All right. So your PhD, which was um, drug mules, women in the cocaine trade, right? Yep. Yep. That's and, right. Um, why, what was like your starting point and where you really want to focus on women in general? So I studied sociology and Scottish literature mm-hmm. for my first degree. And I think one of the reasons I was really drawn to sociology was just interest in in gender and feminism and so to me it just seemed like a really obvious thing to study and then I went and I searched for publications on the drug trade and a lot of it was quantitative so using statistical methods there was some good interview data but they for me the they told kind of half of the picture mm-hmm. which was really about why women got involved rather than what they actually did um, but I think that was partly about the fact that they tended to describe women's involvement in terms of you know, poverty and exploitation. So if that's your main lens, you don't really need to understand why they get, how they get, what they do, because there's this assumption that women don't really have a choice about what they do or what they do is only ever characterised by exploitation and not being under the control of the other person. So that was why I was interested in gender, I guess. Well, that was actually leading to my next question. Because you open your book by speaking of like a drug smuggling case from 2013, where two women were allegedly forced at gunpoint to bring drugs out of Peru. In the cocaine and drug trade, it's the most common scenario with women and drug smuggling, right? It's usually being forced. No, no, it's not. So there's a, there's an assumption that men are the brains of the body. Men are the brains of the business and women are the bodies. So men design everything and women just do what they're told. It's That's the assumption. Um, so there's an assumption that drug traffickers are men and drug mules are women. But this just, it's, not, it's not really borne out at all in the evidence. So even before I started my research, it was really obvious that most people arrested for drug trafficking were men. So about 70% of those arrested for drug trafficking are men. And those are those sort of carrying drugs across international borders. So even looking at the statistics, you've got to think, well, if men are so in control of the business, why are they getting arrested at borders? And the answer to that is that many, most drug mules are men. Yeah. And we know that. I mean, it's not that it's not that surprising. Most kinds of illicit economy activities are, are dominated by men. Most aspects of the drug business are dominated by men. But women are involved. Um, And I think the thing that I found out most in my project was actually if you're a drug mule, your gender matters a lot less than you would imagine because it's just it's just a shit job, basically. (laughs) So it doesn't really matter if you're a man or a woman. The important thing is that you carry drugs for somebody else and you don't really have much choice in what you carry, how you carry it, because all those things are all decided by other people. Um, And the way that drug trafficking is organized means that it's just there are lots of opportunities for drug mules to be exploited in, in lots of ways. So one of those ways is that, you know, if you're if you're told what often happens is that drug mules are misled about what they're going to do. So they're misled about where they're going to go, what they're going to carry, how much they're going to carry. And often those have kind of quite big consequences. So if you agree to carry 200 grams of cocaine and then you find you're carrying five kilos of heroin, the sentence that you would get for five kilos of heroin could be extraordinarily long, especially in America, you're talking about you know, 12 or 15 years, a sentence that's on a parallel with very serious violence. You know, we're talking about a sentence that's on a parallel with homicide, actually. Very, very serious. And it doesn't really matter whether whether the person that carries the drugs is male or female. They can both be exploited. And men were exploited. And I spoke to men who are mules as well. So 
it, it kind of matters at that level. It matters a lot less than you would anticipate. And then there are other questions about, you know, whether whether women can progress in the drug trade to come to become bosses. And of course, there are always and have been always women who are bosses in the drug trade. They just tend to be in the minority. So in one of your essays, so a narrative approach to women's lawbreaking, you explain mm-hmm. that feminist criminology has reached a theoretical impasse. Why is that? Oh, the thing is, we need, when I do academic work, sometimes I think about it intensely at the time and then I forget about it afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so the point, in, the point in writing is to like download it from my brain and then it yeah, frees up space for things later. But I think the theoretical impasse was, in a nutshell was about the following, which is there was one branch of feminist criminology which was really interested in the kind of material aspects of women's lives. So thinking about poverty and thinking about histories of abuse. The problem with that is that it doesn't, really tell you why a person might get involved in drug trafficking right if you're poor your entire life why are you involved in drug trafficking this particular moment or why drug trafficking and not prostitution and not ship not shoplifting or fraud it kind of doesn't necessarily help you answer those questions and then the other avenue is to kind of look at how women are constructed and construct themselves in discourse um which is all very interesting. So looking at how judges construct women who they see in court or how women offenders understand their own offending. And I think the way that I've tried to work with narrative criminology is to try and understand how, in theoretical terms, the material aspects of a person's life are also connected to the kinds of stories that they tell about themselves. That makes sense. So having had a history of... a being in an abusive relationship, for example, mm-hmm. is also connected to a kind of a material embodied existence. But it doesn't tell you why, you know, to, under, to understand how that becomes part of a person's life and becomes consequential. I think for me, that lives in stories, right? Um, so the kinds of stories that we tell about ourselves. So if I can sort of illustrate with a bit of an example, one of my respondents talked about walking down the street with her baby daughter who was a sort of toddler and she was with her friend and her daughter saw a, a quilt, a, a nice blanket in a shop window and wanted to buy it. And she said that she couldn't afford to buy it. And her friend was like, well, I'll buy it for you. It's no big deal. And she talked about how it really stung to not be able to buy this thing that her daughter wanted. Mm. And so for me, it's about both the, both the material and the economic. So in her particular situation she'd been deported from another country so she was kind of impoverished didn't have connections found it hard to get regular work so there was a kind of a material basis for her existence that was also gendered right we know that women get paid less than men they have different kinds of opportunities but then it was also about the the aspect of discourse and what motherhood supposedly constitutes um at this point at this point in history in the global north right these things are always totally contextual so we all kind of have stories that guide our guide how we move through life so my podcast long story short i'm basically mainly talking about books and um like media like films etc so this episode where you're where you're speaking now um is about crime mainly Mm -hmm. because one of my favorite books is in cold blood by truman capote which Mm -hmm. i read when i was probably way too young but I adored it but I was just wondering what's your relationship with like because there's this big like obsession with people like watching like crime documentaries or books and it's fun and entertaining for them I was just wondering what your relationship to crime and pop culture is like do you still enjoy watching something related to like women in the drug trade or are you a bit like no I work on it every day like leave it at home it's an interesting question 
I mean, I think I find pop culture endlessly fascinating. Mm. Yeah. I think in my in my current work, I'm trying to think about how we make sense of. So I think that there is an abundance of stories told about crime in public. And by that, I especially mean personal stories. And I find this really fascinating. So for me, I'm interested in why it is that people can tell stories about crime now that they haven't told in public before. So I, th- I think in general, stories about crime, personal narratives about crime have been confined to the kitchen table, councillor's office, police station, courtroom, rather than necessarily figuring in public life. And I think a lot of true crime centres around these personal narratives. So, sorry, In Cold Blood, for me, is a really, really interesting book because of the fact that it's told in this dis- disembodied voice, right? Exactly. And um, there are these great interviews with Truman Capote where he talks about how important it was for his work to have this, this disembodied voice mm. that kind of floats above and for him to not appear to be personally involved or have an opinion on things. But he was also part of the new journalism movement. So I don't know if you know about this, but new, you know, new journalism is all about putting the journalist's voice in the picture. They were a person, just a ghost, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So if you think about, like, if you can kind of contrast In Cold Blood with, like, Louis Theroux Mm. and the way that he goes and he interviews people about their, you know, their various weird lives, you know, in prison or gang members or whatever kind of weird thing he's looking at. And there's always, it kind of centres around his narrative as journalist and how he elicits these stories from other people as well which I just think is very interesting. And I'm still trying to work out what it all means and yeah. what, it, what, it, what it says about where we are just now, perhaps in relation, changing relationships with the state um, or thinking about how new media might offer up different possibilities for storytelling, different affordances, I'm not sure. Mm. But I don't know. I find, I find popular culture endlessly fascinating and the fact that it has more crime in it than ever for me is, is really interesting. And a lot of our students come with those kinds of obsessions i was about to ask i imagine that a lot of people are like oh i watched a netflix show on crime and now i want to be a criminologist and it's like no this is not what it's what it really is but i mean yes i think a lot a lot a lot of those true crime things have at their heart this idea that criminals are somehow pathological or weird or special or different to the rest of us Mm -hmm. Uh, i remember a visit day once we had prospective students coming, this was not at Goldsmiths, but another university, and a student, a prospective student said, well, we get to speak to a criminal. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, during our studies. And I said, you're speaking to one right now. She was like, what? And I was like, well, actually, you know, 50% of young women shoplift. There's one place to start. We could also talk about fair dodging, um, graffiti, vandalism. It's more normal for people to break rules it's kind of widely accepted thank you so so much jennifer have a lovely day looking forward hope you can make some sort of sense out of all of my waffles but good luck i I will (laughs) big round of applause for jennifer thank you so much Woo! yay that was honestly really fun to do i'd never like interviewed someone like this and i think her insight was really interesting because there are also a lot of misconceptions in crime and especially i think if you decide to study criminology there's a lot that people don't think about and people just kind of come into it for the fantasy you know if i was like a brainy 
scholarly person, which I am not, I 100% would have loved to be a criminologist or a psychiatrist. But I do think that TV and film has also glamorized it in some way. Because when you see these fucking criminologists and investigators on cases, they are struggling. Like, some of these men dedicated fucking 35 years of their lives to have assholes put in jail some of them weren't even caught some of them were killed like fucking pablo escobar at the end of narcos when he dies like they're so annoyed the investigators because they wanted him to fucking suffer anyways speaking of tv and crime i obviously have to mention in my opinion the best tv show in the history of modern television the sopranos now if you haven't seen the sopranos please do. It is one of those TV shows that I feel like is on everybody's to watch list, but no one ever gets around to it. But this fucking show changed television. So, The Sopranos is an American crime drama television series that was on HBO, created by David Chase. It tells the story of Tony Soprano, played by James Gandolfini, who is an Italian-American mobster in New Jersey. What's so interesting about this show and It's not only the fact that, you know, they're mobsters and they kill and they're horrible people. We actually also follow the story of Tony Soprano and his therapist, Jennifer Melfi, who's played by Lauren Bracco, who is in Goodfellas, who's an absolute icon. And it's actually one of the first times in television where men's mental health was portrayed. And during like the six seasons of the show, like Tony's struggling with his mental health, but since he's a fucking macho mobster, he can't like come to terms with it it really hurts his masculinity and also from getting the side of tony and his therapist you also get his entire family his wife carmela played by Edie falco you have his children you have his cousin who's also his protege christopher moltisanti it is honestly so crazy how good this show is like when it ended i was ready to watch it all over again Get off the phone. I gotta go. What's up? It's Jimmy. It's fucking Jimmy. What? The wire. It's fucking Jimmy. What are you talking about? The wire. You understand the wire? It's fucking Jimmy. No fingerprint technique. I should have killed him right in my fucking basement. McKayzian's guy got his facts crossed. They both got busted at the same fucking time. Jimmy and Pussy. You understand? Two fat fucks with black hair. Where the fuck is Paulie? Uh, he called an hour ago. I swear to God, he said he's on his way. Why the fuck isn't he here now? Jesus, Tony. You don't think, uh, Paulie jumped the gun? Shut up. God forbid. God forbid. Don't talk like that. Where's Pussy? Get him on the phone. Get him on the phone. All right. All right. I haven't seen him since, uh, Paulie took him to the Schwitz. Hey, fellas. Where the fuck have you been? I've been calling you all fucking night long. I was at my gumas. I told Silvio I was coming. You answer me like I'm Jesus Christ himself. And if you fucking lie to me, make your mother die. I can't tell the eyes. Where's pussy? I don't know. Don't you fucking lie to me. Tony. Did you do it? Tony. Shh. Don't fucking lie to me. Did you do it? No. Did you fucking do it? No. Did you fucking do it? I said no! Now get your fucking hands off. Come on, Tony. Come on. 
And this is again one of those things, what I was saying earlier, how attached you get to a criminal. I remember there's one scene where Tony's sister does something like really minor. I think like she eats like someone else's pie. And I was like, oh my God, that fucking bitch. And I reacted like that to her actions, but I never said anything once about Tony Soprano literally killing hundreds of people during the show. It's just so, each episode is just so well constructed. There's so many different characters because you also get the involvement with like the New York mob. It's also so fucking funny because I am convinced that in a past life, I was an Italian American. Like, I think I was just this man with a cigar dripping out of my mouth, just just eating ziti all day with my guma. Like, it's just so fucking good. Ah, la 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 la. Crime. All right, enough about people slaughtering people. The mix for today's episode is out on SoundCloud and it's crime themed because why not? There's a nice selection of R&B, reggae, disco, house rock definitely go check that out it's available on soundcloud i will link it in the description of today's episode once again i want to thank jennifer fleetwood for giving me her time to ask her some questions and to anyone who's listening right now thank you so much for joining me i am so grateful to have you i hope you have a beautiful day or night whatever you're doing right now and watch a good film tonight read a good book that is my word of wisdom for today that is it for the second episode of Dear Fevrier. I am your host, Ida Fevrier, and see you in two weeks.